this is the you know the horrible trap of the outside the box metaphor right because none of us think outside our boxes it's not a possibility we build our boxes and we and we change them and we reorganize them but we don't think outside them we think outside other people's boxes and so that's the kind of you know change that you're bringing will depend on on the context and the situation hello everyone my name is dr cindy burnett and my name is Dr. Matthew Worwood. This is the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Today, we welcome to the show Michael Hanchett Hansen, who is a developmental psychologist. He is the director of the master's concentration in creativity and cognition at Teachers College, Columbia University, leader of the participatory creativity lab and a founding board member and the secretary of the International Society for the Study of Creativity and Innovation. Michael is one of the leading advocates for the participatory framework of creativity, which emphasizes the diversity of roles people take as participants in change. His most recent book, Creativity in Improvised Educations, Case Studies for Understanding Impact and Implications, looks at case studies of creative work across a variety of domains and what these cases can teach us about the roles of education in lifelong creative development. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So we'd like to begin with your work as the leader of the Participatory Creativity Lab. Can you describe to our listeners what participatory creativity is and what you do at this lab? So the participatory creativity framework that we work in looks at how we participate in change. And that can be at the level of the individual seeking new practices or ideas to integrate into a point, their point of view. It could be uh, in trying to influence the ideas and practices of a group or organization. And then that's writ large. It is also at the level of contributing to the paths that the society takes and change over time. You know, it sounds probably kind of like an odd way to talk about creativity, but probably pretty reasonable. In reality, though, once you make this slight shift in how we think, there are really broad and deep implications. And one of them I'll just cite, you know, to begin with is that the core question implied by the idea of creativity shifts. It's no longer how do we, quote unquote, have ideas, because the ideas as Vygotsky uh, enumerated, come from the outside world. We we internalize them, transform them, sometimes distort them, sometimes misremember them, and spit them back out. And sometimes we do that in in extraordinarily formal, big projects, and sometimes we do it much less formally in everyday life. We all have ideas. If I am engaged deeply enough in any domain, in any subject, I will have ideas No matter how convergently I tend to think and no matter how traditional my values are, if you get deeply enough into the weeds, you have ideas. 
Um, at another level, we're all working in symbol systems, and those symbol systems have their own dynamics. They change. The domains we work in change. The very conversations we're involved in take their own course. And we will both contribute to that change and have to respond to it. So we'll have to have ideas. I mean, if you think about it, just really at the most basic level, every sentence is a creative act. You have a general idea of what you're going to say, but when you start out, you don't know how it ends. And it is that sense of, of risk and organizing resources here, vocabulary, syntax, knowledge, et cetera, to express something. So we've moved away from this idea of having ideas to how do we take up the roles to uh, participate in change? What roles do we take up? How do we occupy those roles? What are the knowledge, the skills, the experience that we want to bring to bear? How do we navigate, manage, exploit the complexity of the systems that we're working in and that we're part of? I think a great example in this in education is my former student and uh, now at Project Zero, my esteemed colleague, uh, Edward Clapp, who has worked with this idea with makerspaces, right, and developing participant profiles, where you help the students understand the various roles they're taking as a project takes form, and the history of the project itself, who contributed and how many people are involved. Because, you know, you put a bunch of kids in a room and you give them a group project, and somebody at the end will say, no, that was not my idea. We've all, we teach that the ideology of creativity has really kind of taught them to do that. And this helps break that up. And I, in my opinion, as an educator, giving them a metacognition about the roles and the way they bring to bear their knowledge and skills is better, is usually better than any number of brainstorming sessions. Uh, because this really helps them do what I see education as, which is to help us prepare and, and enable us to engage our worlds. And knowing how you like to do that and how you can do that is important. So that means there's a lot more people involved in how we think of, of creativity. And it's a much more complex question. It's not just, it's not just coming up with a bunch of ideas and a divergent thinking test. It's really carrying through. Um, you'll probably recognize, because I know that, uh, Cindy, we were talking about uh, Howard Gruber before we started this. Uh, I studied with Howard Gruber, and he, who was Piaget's, he was Piaget's protege, Jean Piaget, the famous developmental psychologist. And what he did is he took Piaget's idea of systemic development that Piaget used with children, and Gruber took those same principles and said, can we apply them to lifelong development of a distinctive point of view? And he found we could, and with some really interesting implications. And so he saw creative development as the development of a new point of view, and he saw it as systemic. You know, Michael, there's, there's a lot there. And I think, you know, the, the first thing for our listeners to do is, is you know, in um, season one of the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast, or maybe it was actually season two, we, we did have Vlad Glavinu 
on the episode to talk a little bit about um, social cultural approaches to creativity. And of course, that that's where the field has been shifting. But I think connecting it to education and, and Piaget, this idea of knowledge, we, we, this has kind of been something that we've spoken about is the relationship between the construction of knowledge, how the individual student in, in quite often in our conversations we're talking about this about the student constructs the knowledge. And, and Jonathan Plucker's got this, you know, great definition of creativity, where it's really about taking old stuff, putting it with other old stuff and, and creating new stuff. And I, and I think within your your story and, and the information that you've shared in, in at the beginning there, is I think that really is, you know, we can't emphasize that enough is that a classroom environment is where students are going, they're being exposed to new information, they're interacting with their peers, but also have the guidance of the teacher. And ideally, what they're doing is that they're constructing new knowledge. And I think, am I right in thinking that to a certain extent, what you're doing as well, the application piece is thinking about how that knowledge then can be applied to to change, and how we can go about continuing to, to construct knowledge and implement that knowledge to change. Is Is that close to a summary? Yes, and then, and then even the knowledge as change, but then taking it up one more step of abstraction, that in, in that classroom, helping the student be aware of the processes that are happening as they individually and as a group are integrating this. And, you know, it applies across the curriculum. One thing that I'm just shocked by, as you said, Matt, Sociocultural theory has been around a while now, and it is a part of the leading edge of the sea change that's happening in, in my field. But it gets applied so seldom to the classroom. I'll tell another story. I've done a lot of work with art education, and uh, I did some, a lot of research with uh, the uh, Guggenheim Learning Through Art Project, which is just a tremendous uh, 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 program where uh, teaching artists go into classrooms. And a really, really wonderful teaching artist uh, was working with kids to uh, develop prints of to, to design row houses. They lived in Brooklyn, and so they were looking at their community. Each designed their own row house and then put it on a piece of paper so that you made a, a block of row houses, right? So it was learning how to do how to do prints, how to do stamps, how to do the sorts of carvings, how to do design, etc. And one of the things that she noticed is the kids started copying from each other. And at first she came to me and said, you know, how should I change this? How do I get them to be original? And my response and what we worked with together on this is don't. That is exactly how architecture works. If you go through Brooklyn and you look at the penetration of the of the of the uh, row houses those design, small design elements, if you're a good architectural historian, will tell you when the building was built because everybody was copying from everybody else. It was a style. And the key thing you can learn here is really trace it. Who first came up with this particular way of, of designing a window? Who copied it? Who copied the copier? How did it spread throughout the system? And how did we develop a style? And to me, that is, you know, sort of how you think of it more in terms of, of complex systems and dynamics. But it applies to everything, right? History. That's what we're studying. We're studying how change happens. 
Well, even even humanity, just look at the digital computing revolution and who, what was classified as the first personal computer, you know? So many different people working on similar things. And of course, they're within the same field. So they're borrowing and exchanging ideas and aware of what everyone's doing. I think what I really like about what you're bringing to the table is, you know, it really is a collective effort by... I'd say humanity, right? When we're talking about big transformational change, it's a collective effort and we've got we've got to kind of move forward. But that that kind of begs the question to a certain extent with with the digital age, you know, we've had some amazing breakthroughs in technology, but then when you look at something like climate change and I keep coming to this, I feel like we're not progressing as fast as we should do, right? So, I don't know. I mean, this might be a bigger question, but it, uh, is there certain external motivations that take a group in one direction over another direction? Profit for example, is a lot more attractive for the idea of, well, how do we commercialize this? How do we make money from it? And I'm just sitting there wondering, maybe we should try and challenge ourselves to sometimes think about the greater good. I, I think absolutely. And again, you know, if you go back to Csikszentmihalyi, when he, when he wrote his book on creativity and introduced his systems approach, it's a very interesting book because a lot of it is actually about individuals and research he had in individuals. But the chapter that he has on field functions, the evaluation, et cetera, he really acknowledges that this is very dangerous terrain. How we set up our fields and how we make these social evaluations can lead us very far astray. And he, uh, he in that chapter, he cited Jonas Salk, um, a quote from Jonas Salk about becoming good ancestors. And I think as we teach kids about creativity, that's a key issue, is you're trying to take a long-term point of view and... Do you know if you like every like, take climate change, where do we get the problem of climate change from creativity? Absolutely. Everything contributing to it at some point was seen as a huge creative breakthrough. And so you have to continually navigate how these great ideas you have are producing all kinds of unexpected outcomes because you're in a complex system and there are going to be multiple outcomes always and they're never going to be fully anticipated. So that's where I think if we're going to teach in the classroom that slightly meta ideas about what we're trying to do here are important. That doesn't mean that coming up with ideas and engaging in doing uh, project-based learning isn't important. It is. But at the same time, always taking them up a level and saying, okay, so what in the big term is we thinking about this idea of creativity are we really talking about? And I think in an episode with David Cropley, we spoke about the idea of un- unintended consequences, you know, and, and design ethics, you know. And I think that's an important part of, of metacognition as well, is that, you know, we can kind of really be fixated on the end goal, the end prize. But, you know, do we challenge ourselves to sometimes say, right, let me look at this from another perspective. Let me think about this impact on a different group or a different context. Um, and, you know, am I am I doing that enough? And I think that that is also part of the thing that can come into, into metacognition is to keep ourselves in check, keep our assumptions in check and try and remain open to identifying the unintended consequences that come along because actually those instances provide another opportunity for creativity to flourish. Let's just be aware of them. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's, it's, so that's again, where we're really shifting things. When we stop saying it's the person who quote unquote has the idea. And we're starting to say it's the way the social system integrates the new ideas that we have and, and supports their development, the resources available, et cetera. 
when we start looking at it that way, it doesn't stop with you introduce the product or you you, you start uh, manufacturing, et cetera. It's a continual process. I think what really strikes me is your concept around becoming good ancestors. And I think one of the challenges we face in education is a lot of people haven't had creative educational experiences themselves. And I did a lot of research around looking at stories of people's creative educational experiences. And a lot of people couldn't even come up with something. So if they're not having an experience or they're not having a teacher that really sees that creative potential that Mark Runko spoke, spoke about, then they're not going to be that teacher that is being creative in their classroom unless there's some sort of intervention. So that's just something that, you know, and we were talking about Gruber before we we started this, this chat and how much his work has infiltrated your own ideas. So how that morphs into your ideas and how that continues to infiltrate with, with your students. And, and then your students will take his work and how that continues to morph. So the best thing that we can do is be a model for it in the classroom, I think. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I agree so much uh, with, and, and this idea has been put forth by uh, I know a, n- a number of people, but it's so important that the teacher practice what they're teaching, that they teach from this point of personal experience. And we have a system. One of the ways, you know, I am not somebody who jumps on the bandwagon of dissing our educational system at every, at every turn. I, I've been in good schools and bad schools, and, and, and there are lots of both of them. But I do think that one of the things that we have to, we need to do is really nurture our teachers and value our teachers so that they are teaching things with which they're engaged and not, you know, stuck in, in teaching something that they really don't care very much about, only know what's in the textbook and, uh, and, and encourage that, that development in their topics and their fields. And I think, you know, to take away from that, there's, there's what you teach and how you teach. And I think having the flexibility on both those is, is important. A lot of it is helping develop uh, a teaching profession where people can teach in the long term in, in, a, in a place in the long term and have stability as teachers. Way back, this is getting into ancient history, so only your uh, slightly older audience will remember, but uh, when No Child Left Behind came under the uh, Bush II administration and there was a huge testing regime put in place to evaluate learning uh, progress, <clears throat> I was at a, a a really high functioning uh, school uh, in Queens and uh, talking to that did a lot of work in art. I um, was talking to the principal and they had just introduced these optional six week art modules that the teachers could teach and add to their curriculum. And there was a waiting list. The teachers, so many teachers wanted to do this. And I said, you know, my students are telling me that they have any, don't have any time in the classroom because they're having to teach to the test constantly. And she said, you know, that was a problem for the first few years for us too. Uh, but my, you know, and, and this teacher, this school, one of the things that stood out about it had, I think it's tenure, it's average tenure for a teacher was over 10 years. That was its average. And she said, but they're all seasoned teachers. They learned how to do it. But when we have teachers coming in and out and we're forcing them out of the field and we're making it so difficult for them to work and so non-remunerative for them to work that they can't, you know, it takes a special kind of condition to develop teachers. 
And it also kind of, in some ways, makes me feel we go back to, to what you said earlier is this, you know, I need time to develop my knowledge, perhaps through some replication, before I'm then able to start adding my own flavors and creativity to the process. And you're completely right. There's always a turnaround. All we're doing is going in, just trying to survive our first couple of years by replicating what we're seeing, but we're still learning what we're replicating. We're not actually in a position to to create. And then that makes me actually think about, you know, does it take a few years before we can find that fulfillment with with our own creativity in, in a teaching profession? So, Michael, we'd like to touch upon your book, Creativity and Improvised Educations, uh, Case Studies for Understanding Impact and Implications. Can you tell us about what you learned from writing this book? Well, you, know, you, you talked a little bit earlier about uh, the Participatory Creativity Lab. And that lab uh, is a group of um, my best students in from graduate school, most of whom are alumni, many of whom have their doctorates and are teaching now and are, are now all over the world in propelling for and in continuing to construct the ideas and address the controversies implied by the participatory framework. And so we got a uh, book contract with Rutledge to do an, a series called Creativity in Practice, where we take the kinds of in-depth case study work that we have done, that we do in graduate school, and we take that two or three steps further in looking at um, how, you know, how real world creativity works. How do people navigate the extraordinary unpredictability of doing this kind of work when, when it happens professionally? And in this case, particularly looking at lifelong learning and how does learning impact what is happening in, in these people's work? You know, when we're talking about changing a domain, um, I'm just curious, you know, when I look at the 4C model, the mini C, little C, pro C, big C, you know, that the mini C is that discovery point, making new discovery, constructing our own knowledge. Is Do you feel like there's a time piece? I mean, Chick McSee High has to- spoken about the, the, the time it takes to generate knowledge, right? And the importance of knowledge when it comes to that, that big C and pro C level creativity. What Within your work, from a change perspective, is is there a certain set time that we need to understand an existing context or existing situation before we can go and propose new ideas? Or does someone, you know, going back to the teaching situation, is it possible for a new teacher to come in and, and produce systematic change within the school within 12 months, for example? Uh, yes. Yes, meaning, meaning, I'm not going to take that that uh, that choice. Uh, it either is possible, and that's the thing. So that is one of the key principles, right? That I actually got from Gruber on creativity, because you're dealing with something unexpected. It's going to happen in different ways, and so if the context is right, and the school has the right kinds of openings for change, and the right teacher comes in then yes, it could change very quickly with a single personality. If in other situations it takes longer, I mean, there are kind of two questions there, right, Matt? That, as you know, I, I know uh, Dinky Simonton's work on historiometrics has looked at the 10-year rule and how it uh, differs across different domains and that, yes, it does take a while of really in-depth knowledge to change a domain. 
to change a classroom or to change an organization may be a little different. And it's according to the background you're bringing to it and where you start the clock, right? Because what the, whatever I bring to a new organization may be something I've been developing for 10 years, uh, but it's new to the organization. This, this is the, you know, the horrible trap of the outside the box metaphor, right? Because none of us think outside our boxes. It's not a possibility. <laughs> we build our boxes and we, and we change them and we reorganize them, but we don't think outside them. We think outside other people's boxes. And so that's the kind of, you know, change that you're bringing will depend on, on the context and the situation. Thanks for sharing those case studies with us. Now, we unfortunately have to wrap up, but we wrap up every episode with three tips that you would provide to educators to bring creativity into their classrooms. First thing, think about it as creativity in the service of good education, not education to produce creative people. Because if people are well-educated and, like I said, and are deeply engaged in a domain, they will have ideas. It is really, and creativity can be incredibly useful is as a way of helping students think about what they're doing and understand their challenges. Second thing, in the book that we just did, we find that the combination of formal Traditional education and self-directed learning is different in each case, but both are absolutely necessary to each case. And the formal learning lets you know the conventions you're trying to change, as well as those that you, the conventions that you will use and, and, and perpetuate even with your changes. It also gives you a lingua franca to engage with your world and your profession. It, it, it is really necessary that we be able to talk to each other. You might notice we don't do that so well in America anymore. And even within a domain, I mean, it goes down very deep, really, right? You need, you need to understand these conventions to have that lingua franca. But then the other side is you need to have the self-directed motivation to find and construct your own point of view. And those things come together in all kinds of different combinations, but that's the challenge. And so here's what I think. We have to bring the students in on that long-term challenge. We tend to treat them like they're lab rats and we're going to put them in a classroom. And if we do this and this and this, they're going to be creative. But the reality is the challenge they have is long-term. They're going to be lifelong learners. And we have to help them think that way, that this class that you're in under me is a beat but the music, it will help define your music. So how do you do that and how do I help you do that? We need to collaborate. So that's two things. Third thing, and this is, this is where I want to get back to the work that you guys have done, which I really love, on questions. And this is my big proponent, uh, one of my big uh, soapboxes. Uh, I put myself through graduate school by developing instructional design for corporations on training projects. And so when I was in uh, graduate school, I kept thinking about what's the difference between training and education. And this is what I believe. If I'm training someone to sell something, that person has to have an understanding of the basic questions of what does the client want? What's the client going to object to, et cetera. But mostly that person has to know the answers. Really shut down the questions. Education, I think, is the opposite. 
really good education is understanding the deep questions that drive our domains of knowledge and of having an appreciation of how those questions have resulted in new questions and yet new questions and what our immediate contingent answers are today, which will be useful because you'll be able to use them and apply them in different ways, but most useful because as the world changes, you have a structure of questions into which to put knowledge. And the fact that something has changed and answer has changed doesn't mean your world falls apart. It just means it becomes more interesting, actually. So those are my three things. So, Cindy, that concludes this episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. And, Michael, I want to thank you because I've written down a whole bunch of quotes that I think we've got to help promote this show, some some wonderful uh, quotes. Like always, if you've got any questions about this episode, future episodes, potential guests, or if you're, you yourself would like to be a guest on our podcast, please reach out to Cindy and I via questions at fuelingcreativitypodcast.com. My name is Dr. Matthew Werwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This podcast was produced by Creativity and Education and in partnership with dadsforcreativity.com. Our editor is Sina Yousafzadeh.